Welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on the show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided on this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Dr. David Ashley, welcome to Cleoblastoma, aka GBM. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. It's great and thank to you have for inviting you. me. Absolutely. So you are the director of the Preston Robert Tisch Brain Tumor Center, but I was told right. in a past life you were also a professional surfer. Can you talk to us oh, about that? Oh gosh. Come on, give me a break. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's where you want to start? Well, no, I yeah, I misspent my youth, spent a lot of time in the water and yeah, did a bit of surfing, but actually was persuaded by my father that it was uh, never going to hold a future for me and actually I was a better academic than I was a sports person. So he persuaded me to go to university. So was that the transition you had into neuroscience? No, no, no. Um, so I, it, when I went to medical school, we went straight in as an undergrad um, in Australia, we went straight from high school into university, and we did six years of medicine. And that was sort of, that's a you know generic, undifferentiated medical degree. And then from there, I did internal medicine and so on. And sadly, when I was in my final year of medicine and my intern year, my father became very unwell and actually ultimately passed away from a terrible cancer. And it was in really in the second year of um, my career that I started becoming obsessed by cancer. And so I trained in cancer and initially I trained in pediatrics, but ultimately there was an, there was, it was clear that there was a, a huge need in pediatric brain tumors at the time. I was working in Melbourne and only 10% of children at that time were surviving Whereas the leukemia, kids' leukemia was, you know, much more curable. And so I was fortunate enough to um, receive an Australian government scholarship or fellowship that allowed me to train anywhere in the world. And I came over to the United States and decided to train in brain tumours. And I don't know if you know, but from 93 to 97, I spent um, my time doing postdoctoral research. I'd done a PhD in Australia as well. Uh, with Daryl Bigner, mm -hmm. who was my predecessor. And that's how you got to Duke. There you go. Okay. That got it. it. Yeah. And then I, I, I ultimately finished with, I worked as an attending with Henry Friedman. Um, and then in 97, went back to Australia and worked in Australia for 20 years. But my, my journey to neurosciences was really a needs-based assessment of the field and an opportunity around, you know, th that things were going really badly in brain tumours at that time for people mm -hmm. and also, you know, probably feeling the personal or reacting to the personal grief of losing my, 
my father mm-hmm. to this uh, to the cancer. You mentioned having done your initial training in pediatrics, but now you have focused more on adults. What mm-hmm. sparked that transition? Yeah, I often reflect on that. I there's two extremes clinically that I really enjoy working with. I really enjoy pediatrics because of the family based care and talking to people, but I also enjoy looking after older adults. Funny enough, and so I started working in pediatric brain tumors, but also realized that there was a, you know, a critical mass issue and that, you know, if you really wanted to make progress in the science, we could, at the time, we thought we could do things more quickly in adult glioblastoma because we had more patients. And I really enjoyed looking after elderly patients at the time. So I, I moved from pediatrics and I did some formal training in um, in adult neuro-oncology and ultimately got credentialed in Australia, grandfathered in, if you will, as a medical oncologist. So I had a dual certification in pediatric oncology and medical oncology. Okay. Mm. Another question I had was, you have, you're a professor of neuroscience and neurosurgery and oncology. How do you have all these different professions and what did you decide to, how do you choose like what to focus on? No, they're academic appointments. Okay. So I'm, I'm trained as a medical physician in medical oncology but I'm appointed in the Department of Neurosurgery and I have a professorship in neurosurgery because of the academic side. So that, that's really based upon my research. I'm not a neurosurgeon, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, yeah, I, I think it would probably be a dangerous thing if I was a neurosurgeon. It's funny, <laughs> I'm Henry, too Henry said the same thing. <laughs> uh, did he? Yeah, I'm, I'm too impatient. Do you, how do you feel working alongside Henry being that you partnered together so many years ago? How has that transition been from now, like having been partners in the past and now you're the director of the Brain Tumor Center? Well, he was my boss. And now you're his boss? Yeah. Well, Roles reversed. I don't think anybody can ever be Henry's boss, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, I, you know, I love Henry. I think, you know, he's, um, he's such a unique character and he, he, he has made a mark in the world that, is indelible. Uh, I'm, I f- find myself fortunate to be both a friend and and a colleague. Um, I think there's brilliance to Henry that, in some ways, people might miss. But um, I love it, and I and I and he doesn't have a, a big ego when it comes to that sort of hierarchical structure. He doesn't feel a need to be in charge of everybody. I think he's comfortable enough in his own skin that we work well together. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. When you got to Duke. Originally, going going back, your mm. focus was on in vivo and in vitro studies. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that don't know the difference, can you explain what that is? So, in in vivo is in life. Um, so that generally in the lab, that means we're doing animal studies where we try and recapitulate what's happening in human brain tumors in animal models, and in vitro means in the dish. And so, this is um, research that's done at the bench side in general. So we do both. Um, and each of those different things has strengths and weaknesses when we're trying to model and understand human diseases. When starting a research project, will you always start in vitro and see how that progresses and then move to an in vivo study? Generally, I think that's true. But also, we look at the models and we decide what is going to be most informative, in particular, to the question that we're asking. So if it's a question of biochemistry or if it's a question of understanding how something works on a particular cell, the simplest thing may be just to do it in the dish. 
But if it's a question where we're asking, well, how does the blood penetrate the blood-brain barrier or how does the um, drug or the therapeutic distribute through the body, these are studies that can only be done in in vivo, in in animal models and then ultimately in humans. Mm -hmm. How does a like therapy or you know project translate from the animal model to humans like at what point do you guys decide as as researchers that okay we're taking this to the next level and like then how does that work yeah i mean there's no there's no particular fixed benchmark and each of those decisions depends upon an accumulation or a body of evidence so usually what we try and do is um if we're moving from in vitro, in vivo, and then into people, we'll try and get at least three or four different angles at the same question so that we can have a high level of confidence that it will translate and, you know, particularly it won't hurt people. Mm -hmm. So we might use two or three different animal models um, to ask the same question so that it's not just a particular peculiarity of one animal model, but, it you know, it seems to recapitulate keep using that word, over and over again in multiple models. We also, there's what we call efficacy questions where we want to see that the drug or the intervention is actually working in the animal model and we'll do two or three of those. And then we might do some what's called toxicology where we give the drug to mice and we may give it to other animals as well to see if the drug's going to have a toxicity that's unanticipated. And so they're, they're the sort of the precursors of getting to a level where we can get approval to do human studies, and that's usually through regulatory agencies like the Federal Drug Authority. Why is it that mice are the main subject yeah, for those yeah. models? This is becoming a really big question. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a really great question. I think as time goes by it's going to turn out that some of the decisions we made with we call it murine or mice studies, have have really been ill-advised. And what I mean by that is that mice don't model well human brain tumours mm-hmm. and, and often the mice studies are over-interpreted. Why mice? They're cheap. They have litters of pups of many fold. You can breed them. You can do genetic engineering at a relatively low cost in a mouse. And so you can get a lot of information for a relatively low cost base. That, mm-hmm. That's one of the main drivers. There's also a massive resource of different mice with different genetic defects and so forth that you can purchase, interrogate. And so it's, 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 a, it's utilitarian in some ways. Mm-hmm. The problem is that in brain tumours in particular, we're learning that the mouse brain tumour does not really reflect well the immune system of a human brain tumour or the way a human brain tumour reacts to therapy. Mm-hmm. So I think we've been tricked over decades with some of these the outcomes in mouse studies. I think more and more we're understanding that we need to go more quickly with, you know, but prudently into humans mm-hmm. because there's ultimately you have to do these studies in people. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm. If there was like, I guess it's also like an ethical question because, you know, it is. you can, there's so many different animals out there, but I guess how, yeah. choosing to, you know, do this on an animal, I guess it's well, challenging. We, we've been doing models, you know, we, there, there's some work that we're doing where we're looking at what's the seed cell of the, um, and other groups are doing this as well, where they're, we're looking at, you know, 
what's the original cell that ultimately forms a glioblastoma? Mm -hmm. And I think what our, our modelling is pointing to is it comes from a region in the brain um, called the outer subventricular zone. Where is that? Um, so the, the ventricles are the draining system of the brain and then there's an, a region that's called the subventricular zone which is just outside the sort of fluid area. It's the very thin layer that sits just outside the ventricles and the outer subventricular zone is just outside that. So mice don't have an outer subventricular zone. If you look at a mouse brain, actually it's a, it has a very smooth surface, whereas if you look at a human brain, it's, it's quite convoluted. It, it almost looks like, you know, worms. Mm -hmm. Like it's very it, – and – that's because the human cortex is very, very complicated and, and the outer subventricular zone accounts for that complexity. So mice don't have a complex brain because they don't need a complex brain. Humans, we need a complex brain. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how we've evolved. And so, you know, one of the thoughts is that the cost of evolving a complex brain is glioblastoma and that's why mice may not reflect the human brain. But wouldn't you say that there's been, I mean, there has been significant research and like a lot of really great studies. So like mm. some that have come from mouse trials, would you say mm -hmm. that's more of like, if there's, would that, is that like luck? Because if their brains don't model it, like how is it say like that project didn't um, work? No, it's a great question. I Well, has there been great studies? Let me reflect back to you. I mean, what progress have we made in glioblastoma in the last three decades? Well, according to my PhD. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, is it like did, uh, Temidar? That Tem was in the last three decades, right? Sure. Um, yeah. So that you can, you can take – it was. Avastin yeah. was as well. Mm -hmm. The drugs that will, will work – I mean, most chemotherapeutics will have an effect in a mouse – in a mouse brain tumor model, and Timidar certainly did. Mouse brain tumor models are really good for modeling, for example, blood-brain barrier. So if you want to choose a chemotherapy that will pass the blood-brain barrier and have an effect, Timidar was a great choice because it passes the blood-brain barrier, but modeled in a mouse, response in a mouse, and then ultimately a response in the human. Mm -hmm. But the drug, the drug itself was um, originally made i think probably in the 1970s mm -hmm. i'd have to i'd have to confirm that and it, you know it, it's a monofunctional alkylator based upon a drug called ditc which was developed in the 1950s you know it wasn't specifically made for brain tumors mm -hmm. but somebody took it they put it in said so, okay I'll, I'll give you that one tick to amber right <laughs> But if you look at the models, for example, of immunotherapy in mouse brain tumours, they they grossly overestimate the efficacy of immunotherapy. The a lot of the mice studies have shown that checkpoint inhibitors work, that other things work. I mean, my own studies, have, you know, we've modelled vaccines and other therapeutics in the immune system, and they work beautifully in mouse systems, but none of them have translated when we get to the human system. Really? Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is proud to sponsor the glioblastoma, aka GBM podcast. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is a small biotechnology company hoping to make a big difference in the treatment of glioblastoma. 
Using their proprietary nanotechnology, Biodexa is developing liquid formulations of an investigational drug which can be delivered directly and locally into the tumor via an implanted catheter. This drug has been previously investigated in pediatric patients with brain tumors. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is currently running a clinical trial in patients with recurrent glioblastoma known as the MAGIC G1 trial. To find out more about the MAGIC trial, visit magictrials.com. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gametile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the gametiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, menginomas, gametile therapy is a one-time, targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and a far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gametile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gametile.com. Gametile therapy is an FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Novacure is pleased to support the glioblastoma, aka GBM, podcast. Novacure strives to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of their innovative therapy called tumor treating fields. Novacure partners with the glioblastoma research organization to work together on behalf of patients and their loved ones impacted by GBM. To learn more, visit novacure.com. Ruin was built by a team of patients, caregivers, and medical experts, consisting of neurosurgeons, neuro-oncologists, psycho-oncologists, radiation oncologists, nurse practitioners, and social workers who have devoted their lives to treating and helping glioblastoma patients. For anyone navigating GBM, Ruin offers a wealth of medically vetted digestible video answers to common questions. Answers are organized into major topics ranging from surgery to radiation to caregiver mental health. Check it out at Ruin.com. What do you think is needed in order to make these like therapies, I guess, like translate better to humans? Is that just more like quicker translation from like in mm-hmm. vivo, in vitro to in vivo, but like human wise? Yeah. I mean that, that in part. Um, but the other thing is I think we, we may be able to get to better animal models as well. So for example, pigs have a outer subventricular zone. Dogs have an outer subventricular zone. There's ethical issues and large animal studies are much more expensive than murine studies. But mm-hmm. Or we may be able to develop mice that have the more appropriate cell of origin um, and then model from there. The, the, the immune system in a mouse brain is very different to the immune system in a human brain. Mm-hmm. So we need to come closer to what's going on in a human brain. And talking about, you know, vaccines, this different immunotherapy. Mm. The polio trial mm-hmm. at Duke is coming back. So mm-hmm. Henry told me about, and there were some questions that he was not able to answer. So mm-hmm. he wanted me to ask you. The first one was regarding where it's placed in the body, how it's going to be injected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chemo is on the same side lymph nodes mm. versus just anywhere since like the lymphatic system goes everywhere. Yeah. Why is it being that it's on the same side? Yeah. So this is work that um, Mike Brown and Matthias Gromeyer have been doing um, and and other people as well in other institutions. Um, What has been discovered in the last um, decade is that 
the brain has actually a lymphatic um, structural immune system which is very similar to the rest of the body there are some differences but that the the primary place that the immune system of the brain drains into is the cervical lymph nodes and the apical cervical lymph node in the cervical chain um, what is apical it's the it's the top of the lymph node chain in the cervical system mm-hmm. is where it's the the first lymph node that either T cells or antigen presenting cells trafficking to and from the brain enter. When Matthias and Mike have injected polio into the brain tumour itself, it seems that a multi-dose format is much more effective than a single dose. The first study of polio that we published, we just did single dose and there was some there did seem to be some efficacy for some patients in mm-hmm. that study. In the animal models, it seems that multi-dose format is much more effective and in fact there's been a japanese study of herpes virus now that also seems to indicate that multi-dose oncolytic viruses are more effective than single dose and that that's a human study that's in people wouldn't you be concerned though like i Mm. I, again i'm not a doctor so i'm not Mm -hmm. sure like terminology of this Mm. but like if you're you know injecting herpes into someone like Mm -hmm. you're you know helping a brain tumor but wouldn't that give you other parts of another virus like if your immune system, like let's say, yeah. I can't fight all of that. But you, what, these viruses are all modified, so the um, the the brain damaging or the tissue damaging parts have been engineered out. Oh, okay, Got okay. It. So, so the polio virus that we're using is a modified polio virus. It's called PVS Ripo, and the the nasty parts have been engineered out by Matthias and have been replaced with the simple cold virus. Um, what is that? Um, rhinovirus, the thing that gives you a runny nose. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, the, you are injecting a live virus and there is some risks in that that you need to, to balance. In the case of polio, of course, you know, polio is a devastating um, neurologic disease. But what Matthias did was he engineered out the parts that caused the bad stuff and left in the parts that inflame the immune system. And so it, it, it's a benign virus. So, you know, you, are, I'm presuming you and I, we, we've been vaccinated against multiple mm-hmm. different things. They're, they're in general, they're modified viruses that have had the bad bits destroyed or taken out. Got it. Yeah. But back to your question, just to tidy that up, you know, it, multi-dose platform seems to work better than single dose, but it's pretty difficult to give someone six or ten injections of polio into the brain Mm -hmm. (laughs) so what matthias and and mike have discovered is actually it's just as effective to give the polio virus into the cervical lymph node and it creates the same as a multi-dose platform into the brain why do it on the same side seems to make sense okay (laughs) right i mean we think that the the right side of the brain drains down to the right lymph node chain Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be that you could do it in the left as well. Because I know like if you have like a tumor on the right side, it affects the left side of your body and vice versa. Oh, okay. That's a different – but that's because the the motor the motor neurons cross over Got it. when they run down into the spinal cord, whereas the lymph nodes drain straight down. Okay. So it's – Learning simple. so much. This yeah. Great. <laughs> well, the, I, this is – I mean, surprisingly, this has only been learned in the last um, like five to ten years. Okay. Yeah. When is that trial opening up again? I think it should open in the second half of this year. Oh, that's amazing. It's very close. Mm. And that are there other sites or is it just a Duke project as of now? At the moment it would just be a Duke project. I mean, I, I would hope we can make it multi-institutional. I think it's really important to do multi-institutional studies mm-hmm. because, you know, that we take 
we need we need to make sure these things are scalable. So I'm going to reference my computer for a second because yeah. I don't want to botch this. Yeah, no. You are currently the principal investigator of mm. a novel immunogenic telomerase. 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 Yeah. Mediated therapy and GBM project. Yes. Can you share more about that project, what yeah. the goals are and what you're doing with that? Yeah, sure. So this is a project we're doing in collaboration with UT Southwestern and the principal investigator there is uh, is Professor Jerry Shea. So Jerry has been working on telomeres for his whole career. He, uh, In fact, I don't think there's a person on planet Earth that knows more about telomeres than Jerry probably. For those who don't know, what is a telomere? Ah, uh, yeah. So a, a telomere I'm is... I'm partially asking because I didn't pay a lot of attention no, in no. biology <laughs> class in <Yeah>. high school. <laughs> Well, so a, a telomere is the cap of DNA that fits on the end of your chromosome. Mm. And telomeres are involved in the aging process. So as we age, telomeres become shorter and shorter. And then once they get to a critical length, the cell can no longer, no longer replicate. There is an enzyme called telomerase. Okay, so there's telomeres and there's telomerase. Mm -hmm. So telomerase is the machinery that will extend telomeres. Now, in most cells in the body, telomerase is switched off, zero. And so that's why we all, unfortunately, get older. One mm -hmm. of the reasons. There's mm -hmm. other reasons as well. In cancer cells, telomerase is switched on. And when telomerase is switched on, the telomeres continue to stay the same length or get longer and longer, which means that the cell is um, the cell never dies, it, it never senesces. It's one of the hallmarks of cancer. That's interesting and there's been lots of attempts to make drugs against telomerase, to shut telomerase down, some of which have been partially successful. What Dr Shea discovered was that there is a particular drug that will take over the machinery of telomerase and insert rogue elements into the telomeres so that the telomeres shatter by doing the, it's and it's called 6-thiodeoxyguanosine. By doing this, what happens is the end of the telomeres become damaged and the immune system can see the cell and then you get immune rejection of the cell. Why is that important in brain tumours? 85% of glioblastomas have what's called a TERT promoter mutation. TERT is telomerase. 85% of brain tumours, glioblastoma, I should say, hypothetically should be sensitive to this drug. And so we've done animal studies at our place um, at Duke and we published this um, year before last to show that this drug is active in brain tumours in glioblastoma and we're now working toward opening a clinical trial that would be available to 85% of glioblastoma patients based upon wow. their TERT status. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. What does yeah. the like trajectory look like for that? I again, so the Maya is the company. They're working with us. They they have they have a study that's already open in non-small cell lung cancer internationally. They have had some good early results in that illness that also has this telomerase overactivity. And they they're looking to fund our study probably I think again it should open toward the end of this this calendar year that's super exciting yeah so a lot of exciting very exciting clinical trials yeah very cool yeah. yeah how does conceptualizing research like how does that work like, like obviously you know incredible minds think of incredible things but mm. like what does a process look like from and say hey i have this idea for maybe this drug that i've heard of and then how does it actually translate into 
becoming a project? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I mean, when you're young, you generally look to other people and you work with them and, and you know, identify what you think may be vulnerabilities, come up with hypotheses and test them. As your career unfolds, you draw on all your experience and others around you again to, to come up with hypotheses that you can test. And then you generally, as we discussed, in test them, test them in vitro and then in vivo and progress them if they look promising. Mm. One of my last questions, mm. you recently published an article mm. about the title was Can Scientists Learn to Prevent Brain Tumors? For those that didn't mm -hmm. read the article, can scientists learn to prevent brain tumors? Yes. Okay. I think so. I, I, this is something I'm incredibly excited about. Okay. I mean, Let's this hear more. Is, <laughs> well, we, we think we, we can detect the cell of origin. So uh, let, me, let me wind back two steps. One of the difficulties with brain tumours is at the moment, uh, and I think this is in part probably true of many cancers, is that by the time we detect the cancer, it's already done a lot of mischief. So firstly, it's a large tumour by the time we detect it and it's destroyed a lot of you know, brain, particularly glioblastoma, by the time we know it's there. So in order to cure that person or bring them back to good health, there's really going to have to be two parts. Firstly, we're going to have to cure the brain tumour with smart drugs and therapeutics. Second thing is we're going to have to get into regenerative medicine and regrow the brain or fix the damage that's been done. And, you know, scientists are working away at that, but that's a fairly, fairly daunting task. You know, if someone is paralysed or has lost their speech or their vision, you know, we, we, how, how can you put that back together? Not impossible, but a big task. So, you know, if we could prevent humans from getting brain tumours and prevent them from actually ever causing the damage that they do, that would be, you know, the holy grail mm -hmm. of research. You know, about a year ago we came to a position where we think this is conceivable it, with this cell of origin work. We think that, you know, we, we know the cell of origin, we think, we know where it lives in the brain, and then we've been using, using carbon dating-like techniques. You can use genomic time clocks to, to go backwards. So you and I, every cell in the body that we have, collects, roughly speaking, you know, 30 mutations per year. And you can use that information to date cells and, and, and see when a, a certain process started. By doing that, we, we think that brain tumours probably start very, very early in life, you know, you know, perhaps even in fetal development, the very first steps of a brain tumour. So if we could identify those cells at risk and we could see them in, for example, a one-year-old or a two-year-old, then if we could develop a therapeutic approach that could reverse that process or prevent that process, we could prevent yeah, brain, brain tumours. What would that look like, you know, just like mm. theoretical-wise, mm. what you're saying if let's say cells do start to formulate when someone's one years old, like mm -hmm, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you test that? So the or very, is, that like the, yeah. is that the question? No, it's a great question. The, the, the very earliest events in the formation of a glioblastoma is duplication of chromosome number seven. We don't know why that happens, but it's an identifiable mark. So if you could identify either the reasons that that's happening in some people or you could actually see those cells, you could image those cells in, in people before they accumulate the other events. So in order, roughly speaking, 
a glioblastoma has a duplication of seven, then it loses 10, chromosome 10, then it gets a TERT promoter mutation, then it gets a P53 mutation in many cases, and so on and so on. And it only becomes a glioblastoma when it's got a certain accumulation of genetic and other events. Mm -hmm. The cells that are the seed cells are not glioblastoma yet, and yet they have these early marks. So if you could somehow identify those cells with those early marks, perhaps you could give a drug or you could do something to prevent them from collecting those other events. Perhaps there's a particular environmental cause that people should avoid exposure to. Mm-hmm. might be as simple as that. You know, if, you, if, if I had a cell in my brain that had an extra chromosome 7, you know, there's certain chemicals that I might need to avoid in the future to prevent me from accumulating other events and getting a glioblastoma. You mentioned that when cells, you know, gather enough of these different mutations, then Mm. it becomes a glioblastoma. But Mm. glioblastomas typically arise from grade one, two, three, which is an astrocytoma typically, correct? No, not a a wild type glioblastoma. In the setting of an IDH mutation, yeah, they usually go through grade two, three, and then four. But in a glioblastoma, wild type glioblastoma, the first thing we know about them, they're a grade four tumor. So then how would you say that if someone has like a grade two astrocytoma, mm. are you essentially saying that ideally there would be some kind of like marker that would show that it would turn into a GBM? Because some people do live with astrocytomas and they don't progress into glioblastoma. Oh, so we, we would hypothesize that every different brain tumor has a different type of cell of origin mm-hmm. and that the timetable and their aggressiveness is really in part determined by the cell of origin. So a grade one pilocytic astrocytoma in a child is probably coming from a particular cell of origin that is is different from glioblastoma. Um, A brain tumour, a metalloblastoma, which is in the back of the brain, will have a different cell of origin to a tumour that's in the front of the brain. And the the nature of those tumours and the timetable and aggressiveness is in part determined by where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. So I would hypothesise that you can prevent all of them. (laughs) Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm. Like I just said, like a whole, I feel like talking to you for what, 30 minutes at this point, I've learned more than I have ever in any science class that I've ever taken. Really? Well, that's very nice of you, but I'm not sure that's true. (laughs) I promise you it's very true. (laughs) Um, But it was a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show. And sharing your knowledge. And I'm very excited for everyone to hear all of these incredible things happening. And I'm excited to see the progression of all these trials happening later this year. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to another Deep Dive with Staff Strong. Today, let's talk about this episode with Dr. David Ashley. What was your biggest takeaway? Dr. Ashley, I thought it was really interesting how he talked about conducting 
studies and using mice as subjects, right? And oftentimes you'll see this and, you know, he made really good points, right? It's cheaper, right? It's easier to genetically engineer mice and work with it when you're trying at a very early stage, whether it's a a drug or looking at a specific mutation. But I thought it was fascinating and something I wasn't even fully aware of, of Mm -hmm. the difference of a mice brain to a human brain and how a lot of treatments aren't translating because of those differences, right? And hearing that as someone who funds research, and it'll be something I focus on way more as I look at it. But again, he he talked, your point was Temidar, I think, Mm -hmm. right? And he said, yeah, that's one. Mm-hmm. Right. So many things that that has great promise and they're really feeling strongly about after it's tested on a mouse's brain and they move it to a subject, it's falling flat. And I thought that was very interesting to hear from a leader in this space. Just say that plainly. I thought it was interesting how when I first started the nonprofit, you know, when if you're not in the cancer space, right, like you don't necessarily think about how they're conducting research. Mm -hmm. And so when I got into the nonprofit because of my father, I was thinking like, okay, so we're going to start funding research. And I started meeting with different institutions and talking about different projects. And then I was told that, you know, one institution was doing mice trials. And I was like, how are you doing this, Mm -hmm. right? And then it kind of becomes like you you understand like you have to be able – it's like a weird, like, you know, it's like an interesting ethical balance because on one hand, like, it's an animal, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, how are you ever supposed to test anything? So it's definitely this interesting, weird, yeah. gray area. I, I, and what's I don't the, know what's the most difficult part about brain cancer, right? Passing the blood-brain barrier. Right. Right? So how would you ever yeah. emulate that? Right? I had no idea. Yeah. But so, I, think, I think hearing that is interesting as studies occur and as we look at funding, right? It's not always mice. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's plenty of other there's fellowship grants, discovery grants, um, you know, plenty of other things that go on. But a very interesting viewpoint in the, in the weeds, if you may, of research and like literally stage zero research mm-hmm. well before anything goes to clinical trial drug development as he was talking through that. And just like, again, if, if you missed this during the, the podcast, I'd invite you to go back and like listen to it again. I found myself, re- re- you know, rewinding 30 mm-hmm. seconds at a time and, and hearing it again and, and writing different notes about that. And, and to me was something I learned uh, at, at that point during his uh, podcast with you. Yeah. I also really liked how this episode was particularly very informative and extremely well, you know, well, like very descriptive, but in layman's terms. Yep. And even the the tech that was helping produce that podcast, he at the end of the episode, he was like, wait, like I learned a lot. And like, I don't even, like I've never heard any of these words before. Yeah. And so I really liked, I think that episode or this episode will be very informative and helpful to a lot of people, not just on like how the back end of research works, mm-hmm. but also just simple facts about brain cancer and how, like why it's so complex. And I'm excited for everyone to kind of like listen to it. And, and hopefully that makes a big impact too. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts to me about top institutions. Mm-hmm. You, you get a chance to sit down with someone like this and just hear him speak through what they're looking at studies. And and as you said, layman's terms, Mm -hmm. that's often as I've seen and talked with oncologists, surgeons, researchers at these top institutions. That's how I find myself leaving feeling um, because there's a reason they're a top institution in the country. Right. Right. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of deep dive with staff strong.